Hi, welcome to Shakti Stories Podcast, where we talk about embodiment, pleasure, dreams, relationships, and psychotherapy. We ask, what is the feminine? And where does women's sexuality and eros meet soul in today's modern world? My name is Angela Anamkara, and I'm so glad you're here. I hope you love Shakti Stories. If it touches you, please head over to iTunes to give it a five-star review and follow me on Spotify to receive new episodes as they're released. I think you're going to love this episode. Sally Kempton, a former Swami in the Vedic tradition, has been practicing and teaching for over four decades, sharing her profound knowledge of the texts of yoga and tantra with practical wisdom from contemporary psychology. Today, we talk about Eros, the goddess, and so much more. As Sally says, the divine feminine knows that a birth sometimes demands a death, and that the personal self sometimes has to die if the world is to be made sacred. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shakti Stories. I've got Sally Kempton here with us today, who shares her profound knowledge of the texts of yoga and tantra with practical wisdom from contemporary psychology and integral thought in her teleclasses, retreats, and workshops. Sally is the author of the book, Awakening Shakti, The Transformative Transformative Power of the Yoga Goddesses and Meditation for the Love of It. A former Swami in the Vedic tradition, Sally has been practicing and teaching for over four decades. So thank you so much for joining us today, Sally. My complete pleasure. Very nice to be with you, Angela. Well, I'm so excited to have you. Um, to me, it's like this feels like a peak kind of experience because, the, you know, the podcast, it's like always surprising me where it's going. And uh, to me, this just feels like having such a dedicated yogini bringing your wisdom. It's, it's just really such a gift. Well, I guess we could say we're all gifts to each other right now, aren't we? (laughs) True. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny because I've done a couple of yoga teacher trainings. My mom was a yoga teacher. And yeah, I married someone who was really deep in the Vedic um, teachings for 25 years. But when I started reading like Awakening Shakti um, for the second time, actually, I just both times it's like, I feel like a newborn. Like I just feel like brand new to yoga, really. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I know. Yeah. It's extraordinary when you start to meditate on Shakti, how it transforms your understanding about your yoga, your life, you know, your identity, and pretty much everything else. Yeah, I'm so excited to ask you that very first question starting off. Can you tell us what is Shakti? Yes. Well, I'm going to give you the hardcore tantric understanding yeah. of Shakti. In Tantra, especially in the non-dual Shaiva Tantra, which is a tradition that I've studied and, and practiced and which I teach, uh, the understanding about the divine, I mean, we're going to go to, we're going to do metaphysics because it's the only way I know how to explain yeah, that's it. So deep. <laughs> the, the understanding about the divine is that it has two aspects that are inseparable. One is the clarity and transcendent quality of the witness, which in the tradition is known as Shiva, and the dynamic creative love aspect, which is known as Shakti. And mythologically, they're often depicted as a god and a goddess. But in fact, they are utterly non-separate, very, you know, infinitely subtle realities. And the Shakti is that energy which manifests worlds. And also, and this to me is, is the most important thing, you know, Indian philosophy, all Indian philosophy has many topics, but Pretty much every philosophical tradition, especially the ones we study in the contemporary West, is essentially about liberation. So, you know, along with explaining how, you know, their perspective on what the world is, what ethics are, you know, how we know things, uh, fundamentally they want to show you how to recognize your true self and liberate yourself from suffering. And the different paths, of course, have different approaches to this, but the understanding of the Tantra is that the power which liberates you is Shakti, because it is Shakti who has basically made you. You know, you're made out of Shakti, and right. your senses are designed to give you an experience of duality. So if you're going to experience non-duality, you actually have to have the, the controls, the governors taken off, which is one of the reasons why honoring Shakti, devotional practice relating to Shakti is considered absolutely necessary for spiritual progress in tantric tradition. Wow. I love that. So this is so good. It's like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just loving how you can 
you have such a depth around the esoteric piece. And it's like, you know, it makes me so curious about what this all is in our daily lives and, you know, what your sense is, why did you choose the goddess in particular to spend so much time on in your work? Okay. So to answer the first part of your question, that given that Shakti is everything, Shakti is the world, Shakti is your mind, Shakti is whatever exists. And therefore, if you want to make progress in your life, if you want to experience relief from emotional pain, if you want to work with your suffering in, you know, in really skillful ways, the, the quickest route, the most profound route is to connect to the energy that's at the heart of everything. So in practical day-to-day terms, we could say that Shakti is energy, Shakti is subtle energy. It's you know, our ordinary experience of Shakti is generally speaking through the prana. Uh, you know, there's one of my teacher friends often says that, that in, you know, in daily life, the Shiva aspect, the transcendent aspect is awareness and the, the, uh, the Shakti aspect is prana. So, you know, and my, my own experience, probably yours as well, is that when we bring awareness to the breath, you know, to the prana Shakti as it moves through the breath, that that's when we're actually able to transform our experience, whether it's through yoga, through meditation, through pranayama, you know, or just through being attentive to our life energy. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's hopefully a helpful answer. Why yeah. is this? What does this have to do with day to day life? I can tell you, uh, I was on the spiritual path. I've been at this a long time, and when I first got involved in in yoga and meditation, it was in the seventies when there. It was a very different story than the way things are now. You basically couldn't find a yoga studio. I, I think there was one yoga studio in downtown Manhattan, which was where I lived at the time. A very different story today. And my first rodeo, as it were, was with a Western spiritual group, which, which was very influenced by Western mysticism, by Tibetan yoga, and was, was actually extremely uh, good at, you know, certainly helped me understand what the spiritual path was about. But one of the things that was missing was a sense of the of transformative, grace-filled spiritual energy. And I would say that this is what is missing in most yogic and spiritual traditions. The ones that where you feel energy. Uh, honestly, my first experience of spiritual energy was in uh, was in a Catholic chapel in New Jersey where I grew up. So the Catholics have, there's a lot of Shakti in Catholic ritual. You know, I, I would say partly because of their lineage, partly because they, you know, of their worship of Mother Mary, and I'm sure, I'm sure the worship of Jesus as well. So Shakti has to be cultivated. And one of the, you know, my first introduction to Shakti as a significant aspect of spiritual life was when I was through a Tibetan teacher whom I attended a workshop with in I guess about two years after I first got involved in the path. And at one point, he, he, uh, I won't tell you the whole story, but he um, transmitted a, an experience of witness consciousness to me. And after it, afterwards, uh, after I came out of it, which one usually does after one of those experiences, I found that my entire inner body had changed. Uh, you know, what I later realized was that I'd experienced a Kundalini awakening what occurred was that the practices that I'd been doing, which had I'd never felt like I could do right, you know, that we were doing a lot of visualizations, I couldn't visualize with the darn. All of a sudden, the visualizations were occurring spontaneously. I was having visions. I was experiencing radical bliss. And on top of that, like we could say the dark side of that kind of awakening is that all of my buried emotional issues were surfacing. So... This is what Shakti does when Kundalini is awakened. It gives you the experience of, of you know, the powers, the, you know, the bliss, the intuition, the profound intelligence, the subtlety of your real nature. And it also shows you all the schmutz that is blocking you. So, so that was the beginning for me of a relationship with Shakti. I never, I didn't think of it as a goddess. I was, you know, not just irreligious. I was embarrassed by the word God. Uh, but eventually, you know, to make a long story short, it led me to my teacher who was a Kundalini master, not Kundalini yoga 
you know, not the Yogi Bhajan brand, but actual the tradition, the traditional Kundalini Yoga, and whose specialty really was engaging Shakti. It was in, it filled his environment. It was um, it was the engine of grace that uh, that propelled the transformations that occurred around him. So I became really kind of a connoisseur of spiritual energy, without any particular interest in the forms of the divine feminine or the divine masculine, for that matter. And uh, I w- I was with him for for about eight years from the time I met him until he left his body. And then I, you know, he had given me initiation into sannyas, initiation as a swami. He gave me the name Swami Durgananda, which is, of course, one of the names of the uh, the primordial goddess in in Hinduism, which didn't actually affect me very much. I wanted one of those, you know, non-dual names like, um, you know, like Chaitanananda or you know, <laughs> one of those names that stand for the absolute, the formless absolute. But after he left his body, his successor, who was a woman was actually, a, you know, had a family tradition. She's Indian. She's from South India. She's a family tradition of goddess worship. And so she she would do, you know, she would uh, sponsor the goddess, the primal goddess festivals. And at, during one of these festivals, I was, I was telling a story during the, the, during the nine-night goddess festival of Navaratri, and I talk about it in the book, when I was suddenly just overcome with ecstatic energy. And I realized that I that I was having darshan, as we say, of the goddess of the you know the the form that I was speaking about, and from that moment on, it I had my vision shifted in a, in a very in a way that was very palpable, and a lot of it had to do with my experience of the natural world. The ashram where I was living at the time is very very beautiful. It's got you know it's in the country. It had they have. It has exquisite, very well-tended gardens, and the natural world that you encounter there is gorgeous. You know, even if you're, you know, not particularly awake. But this was like, you know, they they put light sparkles in every leaf and every tree, and everything was suddenly filled with significance. I became a devotee of the goddess in in a formless form, and then over time, I got interested in the stories. I I like stories, so. You know, I began to examine the mythology and uh, understand the mythology. And at one point, it became clear to me that, A, given the fact that Shakti is everything, you know, including our human personality, that I could look at the goddesses not simply as divine beings, but also as aspects of our humanity, and to realize that, that the different forms and faces of the goddess exist in the physical world, in the human world, in the human personality, they have psychological significance, and that's where it, that's really how the book Awakening Shakti came about. I, I want I decided I wanted to express this and help people, especially women, but not only women, understand how how much our emotions and our style and you know and our preoccupations and and the qualities of our personality are actually allied to different divine powers. And you know I have found an, and. I'm very grateful and humbled by the fact that many other people have found also that when you get this, when you get the connection between your human personality and and divine energy, it really changes your view of yourself. Yeah. So, so, um, so that's that's my story in short form. Yes, thank you for sharing. I, I love that. Like as a therapist, I've just found it so fascinating. You know that because people come in in such heavy states. You know, often like depression, struggle getting out of bed, numbing, you know, or the other side of anxiety and, you know, such intense energy. And I also love your, I didn't mention yet the other book that I love, the, or the audio book, um, Doorways to the Infinite. Yeah. But I love the, the practices you offer there because um, I've just found they've been integrating my therapy work because it's like, it's, it's actually gives you that, it, it's very similar to focusing a little bit the way that, yeah. Like the initial inward, I don't know if you've heard of focusing, but yeah, Eugene Chandler book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. therapy I do Great and grown in love with, you know. So I'm like, oh, this is so cool because it it's focusing, but it also adds what you're saying there, where you have that you can direct your intention in particular ways and call on certain qualities and cultivate those within. So yeah. I've just 
Yeah. I've just been just so amazed by that, how, you know, it's, it's not, this is not just for people who are feeling pretty good and stable and, you know, something extra. It's actually like, to me, it's so profound how you can ride in the, you know, anger or the, the fear and, and actually travel through that into, as you say, like into a more spiritual understanding. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, this is part of the glory of Tantra is that it really is a tradition that shows you how to take every aspect of your life and make it a path. And yeah, I, I think it's fabulous that you're working with these practices with clients. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I have so much to learn in terms of, you know, what you're, you're offering, but it, it's just beautiful how, um, because focusing takes that similar stance of actually like, okay, rather than the label and analyzing it, you know, <laughs> like just staying in our left going in circles, actually. Um, it's like, let's go into that energy. Let's go into the body. And really it's more than the, it's more than just a feeling like a somatic feeling in the body, but that you can find that, that greater essence of yourself as you go into it, you, you can feel that expansion. So yeah, have you found on that topic, have you found that people generally have said that even when they're in quite dark places, they've been able to find, yeah, like light in this work and find a way forward? Oh, yeah. yeah. And there's there's another factor which, I you know, to me is very important. And it's is the grace factor that, you know, that is really intrinsic to this tradition. You know, it, it is a, it's a devotional tradition there. It's often said that people who uh, invoke Shakti, who let's, you know, let's just call a spade a spade. People who worship Shakti, you know, with devotion very often do it for the sake of acquiring power and by power you know it could be many kinds of power you know that that you know, help in your work power over others you know the power to be attractive you know many many worldly gifts are possible through uh, invoking shakti but most important very hard to make spiritual progress without receiving the power of grace. You know, we really can't do it on our own. We don't. We we don't have that ability. Most of us. I mean, obviously, there are people who do. Uh, you know, I mean, there's that whole Promethean mythology of the West, which is that a strong person, you know, especially a strong guy, uh, you know, can defy the laws of the universe and prevail. This is not true for most of us. <laughs> and you know, and and of course, Prometheus got got roundly punished for, you know, for his, let's call it hubris. So there's another way, which is to really humbly recognize that, that there are benevolent powers in this universe which deeply want to help us, you know, which are, are completely available, even, you know, waiting for us to ask for help. And that when we understand that and when we understand what they are and how close they are to us and are willing to ask that healing happens in, you know, in what we normally call miraculous ways. Mm -hmm. So along with understanding that, you know, you can find, let's say the seed of suffering in your body through intense focus and even transmute it with your, with your focus, you can also find that seed of suffering and deeply ask for help. And that's part of what Shakti is about. I mean, it's, you know, it, this is at the heart of Christian practice, obviously, and of course, many other practices that, you know, that the understanding of higher beings, of higher energies is not just there for the sake of, you know, giving money to the priest, priestly class. It's there because it, it affords human beings, you know, a way to, to receive help when there is no help available from the human world. You know, so because most of us have no power, most of it, you know, most people in this world are poor, most people in this world are sick, most people in this world are oppressed in one way or another. So where are we going to turn? You know, I'm, I'm um, I was just reading a piece in the Times about uh, Christianity, and uh, and it, it quoted uh, it, you know a, a theologian named Harold Thurman, who's a black theologian. One of the things he says is that. The real reason why we need Jesus in the Christian church is because Jesus is, is there for people who have no other, no other source of help. 
you know, no other source of comfort. And of course, this is true in every tradition that, you know, and it's perhaps the reason why, why even very rational people at some point begin to recognize, not all rational people, but many rational people, begin to recognize that there is an energy in the cosmos that you can appeal to as an other, you know, as a helpful other, as a thou, as Martin Luther says, to, you know, to expand your consciousness, to heal your suffering, uh, and just as a, you know, as somebody to talk to when there's, when there's nobody else to talk to. So I'm a very strong believer in, in, you know, being present to subtle energies, higher energies, to personalizing them, and to um, communicating with them. Yes. So goddess, you know, I happen to, to um, be drawn to the feminine at this point in my life, but it's not, it's not about the feminine, it's about higher powers. Right. Wow. I feel like I'm getting such a download here. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did lay it on pretty thick, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I love that. I'm super curious because um, probably my favorite practice in at the moment in um, Doorways the Infinite was that practice on desire, on really following desire in and yeah, finding that as a doorway into the depth of who you are. And it's... Uh. It's just ongoing, the exploration. It's just this, it's, yeah, it's just to me so powerful to, to work with desire in this way because of, probably because there's just been so much suppression around that. And I know. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah but like, you know, how so many other practices like usually suppress this, this piece of spiritual growth, like, and, and spiritual exploration. What could you say about the desire? Yeah. Well, I, I think the bottom line with desire is that it is the engine of creativity. You know, so again, just to return to the tantric texts, the tantric metaphysics, the in tantra, the desire to create, which arises out of the inner bliss of the union of the two aspects of the divine, it gives rise to desire. And that desire is what impels the creation of the universe. So, and you know, the, the whole thing about tantric psychology is that the understanding is that there is an absolute continuum between the highest level of reality and us, you know, and everything else as well, so that everything that is in the divine is also in us. And therefore, you know, obviously, anything that we create, any, any action that we do starts with desire. You know, there's a famous statement in one of the Upanishads, as is your, see, as is your will, meaning as is your desire. They usually translate it as well because desire has a bad name. But as is your desire, so is your thoughts. As is your thought, so is your deed. As is your deed, so is your experience. Uh, so desire is the source of anything. And of course, it's the source of procreation. Uh, you know, that's, that's the most obvious way that, you know, that desire is significant. In it. But it's also the source of artistic creation of you know, pretty much anything we do, if you don't have a desire, there's no motivation. Desire is motivation. So so what the, the Vignana Bhairava does is it takes sexual desire, uh, which, as you say, is pretty much demonized in the yogic world, and it asks you to focus intensely on the, on the rising experience of sexual desire and to, to allow yourself to focus so intensely in the actual experience of desire without acting it out, without trying to take it anywhere, without physicalizing it, uh, you know, without manipulating it, let's say, in any way, and allow that desire to reveal what it is and what it will reveal itself as essentially is ecstasy. You know, it's, it, it will reveal itself in myriad ways, but I would say it, it is a doorway into exquisite bliss. You know, and of course, sexuality, if it's good, is blissful. But in my experience, this is way beyond ordinary sexual ecstasy. It's um, because, you know, what sexual ecstasy wants to do is give us a taste of the intrinsic ecstasy that's the source of our life. So in a certain sense, you could say that, okay, if the yogis say, don't, you know, don't, you know, don't let your desire lead you into physical expression, it it's not or it shouldn't be, or it originally wasn't. It wasn't a, 
a critique of sex as such. It was a pointing out that there's a deeper, subtler experience that if you can stay with that is actually more satisfying than anything else, Mm -hmm. anything that you can do on the physical plane and is available in the physical plane is, is as long as you're willing to go to the subtle subtlety within it. Right. If, yeah, if if you can stay with that and not not dissipate it. So it's actually the difference between, you know, I mean, that, there's an absolutely utterly orgasmic experience of subtle ecstasy that occurs when you go into desire or that can occur that goes when you goes into desire and again in my experience that type of ecstasy is very much associated with goddess and what um you know i think many of us have had that experience more or less spontaneously at different times and you know and it, it's definitely a part of the best sexual experiences uh, when you add connection to the goddess and, you know, and goddess practice and, you know, to the intention to allow yourself to mine the depths of what desire really is, uh, it's just extraordinary. And, you know, it's, you know, people talk about all body orgasm. It's, it's kind of an all body, all worlds, you know, mind opening form of arousal that's that's you know quite extraordinary and and really combines the human and the divine you know in a in a way that's absolutely unmistakable so you're nodding i i gather that you that you know this experience yeah it's you know i love actually it's funny because i think i i bought um awakening shakti many years ago but i found it so it was so much to digest yeah a lot of it it wasn't until this year that I just dove back into it recently, but you didn't I, get to the chapter on Lalita until recently. No, I was going to say I don't think I made it to chapter twenty until recently. Yeah. And when I did, I was like, "Oh, this describes an experience I had perfectly when I was." It was about ten years ago. I was twenty-seven. I had just handed in my thesis, and I went on a week-long meditation retreat. And there's a bit more to the story, but the the gist of it is that I had this this real bliss experience and. Yeah. When you describe that that thousand petal lo- or thousand petal chakra, you said, yeah, the, I was just so intrigued by that. Cause like that's exactly exactly what I felt. I felt this opening wow. and all this bliss, and I just I've never experienced anything like that. Well, I mean, I've never experienced that quite like again exactly. You know, yeah. it was um, mind blowing. Everything was just so perfect. I was like, oh, everything is perfect. Everything, and yeah. so. So that's cool that you brought that up because I wanted to ask you those a couple questions around this. One around that the the erotic goddess Lolita and how you speak about that in Awakening Shakti. And I'm so curious to just hear a little bit more about how that's you know how that's relevant today. How is her energy or qualities important today? So I want to be clear for the sake of Hindu orthodoxy that I've done quite a bit of interpretation of the goddess Lalita based on my own inner experience and also on, let's call it channeled information that had kind of came through me as I was writing the book. So Lalita, whose full name is Lalita Tripura Sundari, which means the playful, beautiful one of the three worlds, three worlds being the waking, dreaming, and deep sleep state, and also has other meanings. But uh, Lalita is uh, a form of the primordial Shakti, She's a form of the great goddess, you know, the, the, um, the, the goddess who contains everything. And she's uh, a warrior, but she, she's a consort. She's, you know, she's, she's uh, partnered with Shiva in mythology. And the pictures of her show her being supported by four male gods, by the, the three deities of the Hindu trinity, Brahma, Vishnu, and Rudra, and another form of, of Shiva, and also sitting on a lotus that comes out of Shiva's navel. So literally rising from the prone form of Shiva. So, and it's very highly symbolic because it, it, it's intended to convey the fact that she is the, she's the queen of the world. She's the, she's the source of reality and it is her desire which gives birth to the world. And it, you know, there's another meaning to it, which is that Shiva, the, ma- you know, the divine masculine, uh, is inert without being having 
is Shakti activated. So Shiva is shown in Shavasana, you know, in a kind of a erotic swoon, you might say, with her kind of tri- you know triumphantly emerging, sitting on a throne, uh, coming out of his navel, and she's generally she's uh, invoked in in several different forms, including the famous Sri Yantra, which if you you know which you can find on the internet and show people if you want to, which actually it depicts the 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 way that the universe arises from the heart of reality. You know, there's a a circle in the center, tiny little circle in the center, which is said to be the seat of of uh, God and goddess in union. And then there are triangles that erupt out of it, which represent all the different levels of reality. So she's that. And she also, uh, you know, her relation, the relationship of Shiva and Shakti in this particular form is highly erotic. They are lovers. They spend, they spend, you know, kind of half their time making love and the rest of their time talking about philosophy. So, you know, they're, they're very much at the heart of the tantric understanding of life. You know, life as both uh, the expression of bliss, which is quintessentially erotic. You know, in other words, the understanding in tantra is that, that eros is the love energy that gives rise to reality. And it can be expressed sexually, but it's also expressed in music. It's expressed in you know, in in different forms of pleasure, it's expressed in the plants growing from the earth. You know, it's expressed in every aspect of the natural world. The, you know, the kind of quivering eros of, you know, of our connection to each other, the dance we do with each other. So that's who Lalita is, and that's what Lalita-style eroticism is. It's it's yes, it is sexual, but it's not only sexual. You know, one of you know a teacher that uh, who I like who talks about this says. Sex models eros. It doesn't. It doesn't exhaust eros, you know, because eros is is really the life force itself. So our our experience of sexuality is, for most human beings, the closest we come to really getting a sense of how profound, you know, our erotic connections to each other really is. But what you know, tantric spirituality, and I would say all spirituality, really offers us is the opportunity to realize that this is. This is in everything, and it's available, you know, in every level of our experience. Wow. Wow. That's really powerful. Yeah. It's, I think, I mean, it's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> why, it's why we're alive. You know? <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> okay. So that, that leads me to another question. When you're speaking about this, from what I've noticed in the past maybe 10 years, more and more, I see people having the talking about Kundalini awakenings. I'm not sure. I'll, I'll be interested to hear what you say about that term for what people are describing. But um, more and more people are doing breath work. They're doing psychedelic, right? And they're having these big experiences. And I'm finding this even more and more with my clients who are sort of, and they're coming from these places of like, you know, very, um, not always in that exalted state, but they, they've connected in with something. I'm so curious to know what your sense is of those experiences that we can have through an altered state. Is it, I mean, it's real, like you feel it in a very real way, but is it from the meditation perspective, is it kind of like getting ahead and getting this like peek into what is possible? What's your sense of that? Well, yeah, I, I, I would say that what you say is true, that, you know, that clearly there, there are brain states that are, you know, there. I would. I don't quite. I don't know the language for this, but there, there. You know, just as there are cannabis receptors in the body, just as there are opioid receptors in the body, there are clearly psychedelic receptors in the body. So, when you put one of those substances into the body, it's going to trigger certain brain states, certain body states. And my first experience of divine love was during an acid trip. So, I, I could never trash psychedelics. That <laughs> extremely important to me but that said you know that experience you know took about i think it lasted maybe not even 24 hours um totally changed my life but you know i chased it for a couple of years and i'll be very honest um the experience that i had in that in that state was an experience of my heart just flinging open which i've actually never had i mean i i took a lot of acid in the you know the couple of years after that experience. And honestly, 
once I had become used to it, and, and this has been true ever since, you know, I periodically take psychoactive drugs, but I haven't for a few years because I found that it's rarely that interesting. In other words, somehow I know that, that I'm going to have these reactions. You know, there are going to be certain physical, visual distortions. I'll have, you know, I'll have some emotional experiences. I'll, be, I'll become embodied or disembodied depending on the drug in the day, etc. But it's, it has never since been, well, I, actually the first time I took ayahuasca, it was pretty radical. But it's never been that radical since. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I didn't take enough. Um, but it's, it's kind of like once the brain knows, you know, what the effect of a drug is going to be, it's not going to rock your world in the same way I've found. Now, comparing that to meditation and breathwork and yoga, I know I don't do a lot of that dramatic breathwork that has become very fashionable these days. I have some friends who teach it and do it. I do, I, you know, I've had a, a few experiences, you know, it can really bring up your energy, brings up your shakti. Uh, I would say breath work probably is the most dramatic in this, you know, in its ability to accelerate uh, shakti-driven experience in the body. Meditation, at least for me, tends to be more subtle. But the thing about it is that it it lasts, you know, when you meditate, when you meditate deeply. It's not over when you get off the mat. I mean, it, you know, it permeates your day. It changes your consciousness, and it it continues to change your consciousness, especially if you practice. Which, you know, with all of its powers, and I, you know, I have great respect for psychedelics. Psychedelics alone won't do. So, um, I I think they've been very useful to thousands of people and shown us that the inner world exists. But at some point, you know, you have to you have to take the trip yourself. I appreciate that. That really did answer my question because um, that's my sense too, is that I also have had powerful experiences and realized that there's ways of um, moving through blocks even that you, you just can't, can't always even get to or imagine by sitting in meditation. You, you may not get to that place because of sometimes your own ego is even blocking you, you know? Yeah. 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 Powerful um, through way and opening but then um, there is something, as you were saying, about the the longer lasting nature of the meditation journey. It's like, okay, I know that I'm doing this. I know that either way, it's you. I mean, we have psychotropic minds, but <laughs> right. it's the fact that you don't, um, there's nothing to become dependent on with meditation. It's actually, right. yeah, a very conscious practice. Well, and also, it's not going to mess up your body. Yeah, I was just going to say, there's like no risk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have to say, I like MDMA a lot, and, you know, it's, it's an incredibly valuable practice for psychotherapy, as I'm sure you know. But the thing is, when you take MDMA, it uses up all your serotonin, you know, and if you do too much of it, and by too much of it, I know many people I know, it's like three or four journeys, then it, it takes you months to get your serotonin back up to speed. So the cost of psychedelics is high. Yeah, there's a real crash, and yeah, and that. Yeah, I, I so agree. There may be longer term uh, impacts with that. So, okay, this is just so great. So there's a couple other questions I want to ask you. One was about just coming back to Lalita. Um, there was one other thing I wanted to ask you when I'm thinking about the the goddess as having this like erotic element and how people are starting to tap into that. One thing that came to mind was people more and more have been coming to me. Um, I've just been noticing in client sessions, clients are asking about whether they, like women, I see mostly women, and they're finding attraction to other women and they're wanting to explore, like, am I bisexual? What does this mean? I'm super curious to know what you'd say about whether it's something to do with the goddess waking up and that, you know, that it has something to do with us shifting from, you know, more a patriarchal way to a more goddess loving way and that's just showing up in people's daily lives and their attractions. I think that's really possible. I mean I, I see a lot of of homoerotic activity all, all over the world, men and men, women and women. I don't know why it is. I think maybe because men and women are in a certain respect strangers to each other. It's one of the things I like about sexual polarity. Yeah. But but admittedly there's something very sweet about being with somebody who's just in your own gender who who gets you yeah. in a way that the other gender normally doesn't 
yes. or you know it doesn't it doesn't entirely yeah. and so I, I mean that's you know I that's the um that's one reason for it and I, I think also that as women become more centered in their own innate eroticism you know and and are willing to to not be objects in the way that you know women have traditionally sort of seen themselves in the eyes through the eyes of men and enjoyed themselves as objects of desire that to that feminine desire female erotic desire is i think the ability to experience it you know the the permission to experience it is fairly new in the world i mean obviously women always have but it's always been slightly you know yeah. hidden and not okay so i would say that in in exploring your own desire nature your own erotic nature it's probably interesting to you know to think of exploring another woman's erotic nature you know it's female again i i don't i have to admit i don't have a wide amount of sexual experience i mean i i certainly have been sexually active in my life but not so much in the last 30 years or so 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 i come from a time when not all the doors were as open as they are now but my sense about about lesbian activity is probably women have been attracted to other women forever as men obviously have been attracted to other men forever so now there's just more permission in our societies that's yeah that's what i have really been telling people normalizing that hey the the gender and the sex of the other probably wouldn't matter so much in it wouldn't be paid attention to so much in a different culture if we were in a just a more accepting way with sexuality and as you said i think that's a great point um with women's power and women's right to just choose what yeah what they're drawn to and explore yeah yeah and you know and that sort of natural narcissism that human beings have you know i want to see myself in another person you know It's a, it's a somewhat easier to see yourself as another person if they're in a body that looks like yours, you know. Yeah, okay, so I I still want to ask you one other thing about so I know that you were a big part of the second wave feminine feminist movement and I was wondering how you see that has changed how how has that changed for you as you've deepened in the spiritual teachings and path. Yeah, well, this is a, this is a complex topic for me because the women's movement the second wave of women's movement was utterly seminal in my journey i mean it was really a part of my personal liberation and i was the the aspect of the women's movement that i was involved in was was the it was an organization called the new york radical feminists which was a it was a pretty radical aspect of the women's movement and one of the original groups it was so i guess about after about 2 years when women's liberation exploded as a cultural force and you know the the sort of mainstream feminism the you know that aspect of feminism which is you know which involved Shirley Chisholm and Bella Abzug and Gloria Steinem and you know and the very powerful grassroots work that began to be done so that that was going on but what was going on in the more radical wing of the women's movement was two things one a, a strong anti-masculine bias and you know a lot of emphasis on you know on you know kind of separating yourself from men which i wasn't willing to do and also a tremendous amount of infighting so you know that and which just became unbearable to me i you know i just i really just couldn't stand yeah. um, you know all of that organizational infighting So I kind of removed myself from the external women's movement and it was about the same time that I got involved in spirituality so I kind of put away all worldly things at that point and when I got uh, this is where it gets complicated and I'm not sure we want to go into all the details of this but I had a male guru and, yeah, and he was Indian which which means that the attitude towards women in India very not so much now i mean there's been an enormous you know there's a there's a big feminist movement in india and there's and indian women once they're liberated from you know from the old social strictures are some of the strongest females in the world so this is not about indian women exactly but it's about the culture the religious culture 
that I entered when I entered that tradition. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just it just went underground, you know. I just went. It became it. It stopped being something that that I thought of in the same way that I had earlier. I mean, just to put it, I think more accurately, I became much more focused on internal growth than I was on social action. It was only later that, you know, once I had done enough internal growth that I trusted myself. Because, you know, one of the things about social movements is that our wounds get so mixed up in them that if we're self-aware, if we're honest with ourselves, we can't be entirely sure that our, you know, that we're that we're in clarity about who, let's say, whose fault it is that we're suffering. Right. So for me, it was very important to clarify my own motivations, my own character, before I started looking around and, and saying, oh, wait a minute, this isn't fair. This is oppressive. You know, and, and it's not just women. You know, it's capitalism. It's racism. It's, you know, I, I, you know, it's all those things that, of course, we all know. We're all very familiar with now. But I, I very much believe that, that it's a little bit, you know, it's a chicken and egg issue because until we have real opportunity, you know, education, work opportunities, cultural opportunities, it's very hard to understand ourselves. And yet, unless we understand ourselves, we're just going to recreate the same conditions that we came out of. So, you know, I, I guess you could say if, if I have a mission at this point, it really is to integrate you know, inner work and and uh, social justice, you know, psychological work and and doing what we can do to change the structures of society. Uh, but you know, looking at and especially this week in you know in the United States, looking at the polarization, the condition. I'm I'm not going to critique the white supremacist activists, though I have a lot, you know. Though I think they're horrible, but you know, their interior there there's a kind of interior awareness that we need to cultivate if we're going to if we're actually going to be effective in changing the external world. You know, and and what I just did calling the white supremacist people who stormed the U.S. Capitol calling them horrible was, you know, not something that I, you know, I, I I'm not going to say I take it back, but I, you know, I would say that. That until people learn how to change from within, we're not going to have a satisfactory transformation of our society. And this, this said, you know, with all honor for, for, for the people who are actually effectively changing society, you know, especially black people, especially my political friends, you know, they're doing extraordinary work. But the thing I notice is that the ones who are able to do it with a form of ease and calm and what I would call deep justice, are almost without exception people who have spiritual a spiritual life. You know, either either they're Christians, as many black activists are, or they're Buddhists. So there's there's understanding that it starts inside. Yeah, that's really beautiful, deep justice. Wow. Well, you've just oh, you've offered so much wisdom. I'm gonna have to. I'm excited to listen over this again. <laughs> Um, one other thing I just wanted to ask, is there <coughs> you, you could say about what the need is for Shakti right now in the world? Well, we, can, we have Shakti always. Right. We can't get rid of her. She's us. Yeah. I would say the need. You know, okay, so one of the great insights about Shakti is that, and this is very hard for Westerners, especially Westerners from the Judeo-Christian traditions to understand. Shakti is everything. So she has her dark face, her shadow face, as well as her light face. And what I believe what we need is, is to honor the dark face, you know, rather than putting it outside of us, while at the same time recognizing that, that it's, that we want to live in the light, you know, so somehow to find a way of integrating, understanding, not demonizing or putting outside of ourselves, you know, our shadow aspects and you know, and not not giving into them. You know, so I think that I think that's what we need. I think you know we have Shakti if if you just ask for her to be present. You know, the great Ramakrishna Paramahamsa used to used to pray, Mother, show me your liberating face, not your binding face, not your oppressive face. Right. So it's it's her liberating face 
that we need. You know, it's it's hope and you know and the power to make change both internally and externally. And you know, and trust that if we are sincere and clarify our motivations and are courageous and are willing to, you know, to take risks in you know in humble petition that that she that she's she's gonna help us. But you know, life is mystery and maybe human the human race is not meant to be permanently on this earth. I mean that you know, it, it may be that we're not here forever. Yeah. You know, and that and that the goddess Earth might just say, Enough of these you know, these world destroying humans. Right. So, so yeah. in a, you know, in a way, if you're gonna worship her, if you're gonna love her, if you're gonna invoke her, you have to realize she has her own mm-hmm. agendas, you know. And we and we have and our obligation ultimately is is to life, you know, it's to it's not to it's not, it's not simply to our personal needs and desires, though. Of course, we have an obligation to ourselves, but, you know, she's not just soft, she's tough. Wow, you've just said so much today that I think it, yeah, I think it'll just, for myself, I can say it'll continue to percolate and I think have a really strong impact on how I continue to see things. And yeah, I, I really so much appreciate that you showed up today. I think one of the earlier words you said was grace. And I, I really felt that I actually felt through this conversation, just very alive and excited and, um, and so curious and also humbled. And so it was, yeah, I really, really appreciate that you, you showed up today and shared your, your, your spiritual depth and wisdom. Well, thank you, Angela. And thank you so much for, everything that you're doing you know it's we're all part of a of a huge wave of feminine wisdom yes i know it yeah Yeah. it feels like something's you know it's like shakti story seems to have a life of her own i'm just (laughs) yeah yeah she definitely does yeah (laughs) oh wow thank you so much well thank you and thank you everyone who sees and hears this and you know may we all be ecstatic in our embodiment So, thank you, Angela, and thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining us at Shakti Stories, where we are empowering feminine bliss.